The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, trench warfare, necromancers, and visions of future warfare from an alternate timeline. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirod. This week, Josh Hayes sits down with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope for a discussion about A Call to Insurrection, the latest entry in the Manticore Ascendant series, sure to entertain and inform. But first, the news. The March hardcovers and trade paperbacks are in. Let's take a look. First up is the first entry in the new military fantasy Age of Raven series by Larry Correa and Steve Diamond. The book is called Servants of War. Ilarion Glaskov's quiet life on the fringes of the Empire is thrown into chaos when an impossible tragedy strikes his village. When he is conscripted into the Tsarist military, he is sent to serve in the Wall, an elite regiment that pilots suits of armor made from the husks of dead golems. But the Great War is not the only or even the worst danger facing Ilarion, as he is caught in a millennia-old conflict between two goddesses. He must survive the ravages of trench warfare, horrific monsters from another world, and the treacherous internal politics of the country he serves. Next up, we have the second entry in Tim Aker's Men in Black at the Ren Fair urban fantasy series, Nightwatch. The new entry is called Valhellions, and it's one hell of a ride. When John Rass signed up for Nightwatch, he expected it to be all fighting dragons and rescuing maidens, you know, hero stuff. But instead, he stuck patrolling game conventions and cosplayer competitions. Fortunately, all that changes when an honest-to-goodness necromancer shows up wielding a weapon created by Nazi occultists and accompanied by some badass evil Valkyries hell-bent on kicking off the end of the world. John and the team will go to great lengths, even Minnesota to find out who's responsible for all this and foil their plans. Also, there's a giant dog who thinks the moon is a ball. It's epic. And finally, editor Sean Patrick Hazlett and an all-star lineup of contributors speculate on the war after the next in the all-new anthology Weird World War IV. What if there were a war after Armageddon? How would the survivors emerging from World War III's radioactive slag heaps fight in this conflict? Wipe away the ashes of civilization and peer into a pit of atomic glass to witness the haunting visions of World War IV from today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. That Servants of War... Valhellions, and Weird World War IV, all available in hardcover or trade paperback and ebook formats everywhere. Larry Korea is probably best known for his Monster Hunter International series, but the action-packed tales of Owen Pitt and crew are but one facet of his far-ranging talent. To celebrate the release of Korea's newest novel, Servants of War, with Steve Diamond, we're offering discounts on all of his non-MHI backlist, including the Grim Noir Chronicles, the Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, and more. Sale ends March 31st at midnight, and this discount is available wherever Bane ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Uh, well, hello, I am Josh Hayes, and welcome to the interview portion of the Bain Radio Hour. I am here with 
Timothy Zahn and Thomas Pope and David Weber to talk about A Call to Insurrection, the newest book in the Manticore Ascendant series. Uh, we've had a couple of technical glitches in the last uh, 30 minutes trying to get this uh, interview run down. So hopefully we can get through this smoothly with no other uh, hesitations or problems and the gremlins are all put there to bed and they have no go. access to water. Angering the gods again. Yeah, I, <laughs> you know. it's crazy. Great. Well, when you get when you get so many great minds in one room, it just starts breaking the internet, and then we have to deal with that. So, obviously, we'll we'll go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I I said before we started recording this uh, the last time, I had uh, read uh, all four right in a row. I I remembered that I read the first one way back when it first came out, and when I got the opportunity to read the second uh, the fourth one here. I, I I almost started it, and I was like, no, I need to binge the whole thing. So I binged the entire series in about two weeks. And uh, so if I get some events confused from the other books, you'll have to forgive me. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll try to keep it to, to insurrection. Uh, it's a fantastic series, first of all. And, and I've told this to a couple people. It really takes me back to a call to uh, on Basilisk Station, a short victorious war, all the the staple beginning honor Harringtons, and 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 really getting back to a a uh, a really nice dichotomy of like working man people and high level politics and uh, maneuvering. And uh, I mean, you've got you know assassins and people that are doing things that they don't even know that they're doing. And it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting the way you guys have, have kind of weaved this story together. Um, so uh, I don't know who wants to take the lead on where the kernel of this particular, I know it's a, a part of a bigger series, but as the, as the point of the story, which is mostly uh, the Andermani and then a murder investigation, where did that come from? Well, this whole series is David's fault. You can talk for <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We blame him. Yeah. Well, when I <clears throat> when I began working on the Arniverse, there was a back history uh, that was existed, I guess, in what you might call a purely conceptual format. I hadn't really worked out details uh, for for example, the prehistory of the Andermani Empire, except that Gustav Andermann had been a mercenary who'd founded it, that it was, you know, basically Oriental Prussians in space, you know, sort of thing. Um, and um, Tim uh, did a short story for one of the anthologies, uh, which was set in the very early days of the of the Star Kingdom. In fact, in what would have been the prehistory of the Star Kingdom from Basilisk Station. And I had been for some time wanting to fill in some of that backstory. And one reason that I had hesitated to do it was that uh, when I had tried to do the backstory for Path of the Fury, which in some ways I am now doing with Richard Fox in, uh, in that series, um, I didn't feel satisfied with what I had done to move the technological capability back 300 years. There was there was it, there was too much. There was too little space for a future development between my 300 years old technology and the technology of the time of. of uh, so Tom is kind of the keeper of the uh, man, of the Honorverse uh, technology and and background. Um, and at this point, if I have a tech question about when did something get introduced, I call Tom and say, "Tom, when did we do so and so?" And he pulls up his records and he says, "Well, that was on July the twelfth, nineteen twenty-one, PD <laughs> at seven p.m. You know, on page so and so. You know, uh -huh. and sometimes I'll say, or was this other time? Because it says at different times in different places. Yes, <laughs> yeah, so then I say, "Shut up, Tom." You know, kind of thing. but. Uh, so it occurred to me, and I have to say that Tim has always been one of my one of my favorite writers, and I really liked the story that he had done, uh, which had introduced plot elements that we could use to to as sort of a uh, a doorway into 
into that earlier period. And so I, yes, Tim. I didn't say anything, sorry. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought I heard you say something. Um, and the beauty of this is that Tim's writing style is not my writing style. And that means that these books have a different flavor stylistically, which goes well with the fact that they are a different era in the Star Kingdom's history, if, if you follow what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's a hell of a storyteller, but he doesn't tell them in the same ways that, that I would, um, which I think really, really works uh, in this series. Um, and both of us work closely with Tom and through Tom uh, in building the, the uh, foundational documents for how a, a book is going to be written. There's a lot of stuff that goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with, with comments being, being made uh, by all parties uh, before we wind up with the final, this is how we're going to do this book. And then like all projects, we frequently find while we're going along that we have to adjust things uh, on the fly because somebody had a better idea uh, or, oh, wait, that won't work after all because uh, kind of thing. Um, and I think it's the synergy of, of the three of us coming together that makes these books work um, uh, as well as, as they do. I'm actually primarily involved in the in the writing as opposed to discussing plot concepts and how this all fits together into the history and so forth, primarily for the tactical aspects yeah. of the books. Um, and if, when, when I'm getting ready to do one of those, especially because we're looking at this older technology, I have to sit down with Tom and we kind of go back through, you know, how does this differ from what I could do there? What do I have to be careful about not introducing at this point in terms of a tactic that would have become standard by honor's time if it had been introduced here, et cetera? If, if I mean, that's a great point because you're, you're, you've, you've spent so many novels building up present day, present day Manticorean technology and introducing uh, tactical things that they do in that series. And then to go back several hundred years in the past where, I mean, they still have spin sections on their ships. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so how does that affect the combat? Yeah. It was, and, and it affects it a lot. The spin sections less than a lot of the other things, but that sure. too, I mean, you know, it's like you take a missile hit in, in Travis's day. Uh, and unless you're a battleship, that's all she wrote. Yeah, uh, pretty much, um, which is a lot. Well, and a more... couple, a lot of that is dealt with in in this book when, yeah. when they get, get, get hit and then yeah. Uh, yeah. he has to uh, help the damage control teams and worry about yeah. what's happening with other characters yeah. on the ship. Well, I just I just finished a short story. Well, 26,000 words short story for me, <laughs> um, which is actually in a lot of ways uh, the courtship of uh, Horace Harkness, uh, which is a story I've wanted to write for a long time and which could wind up being expanded into a novel uh, in, instead. But um, I had to go back to 1907 post-diaspora for the combat section in it when the pods had just been introduced they were brand new you know and i had to bear in mind that like you know folks were still figuring out on the peeps side what this could do and the people's commissioners were running around on the ships and it was fun but i had to really really watch myself to not import attitudes mm. from 1925 pd right. into those books and this is even more so in a lot of ways. But I would like to say that one thing that these books do, the reason they're called uh, the Ascendant series, is these are the books in which Manticore goes from being Iceland to being the British Empire mm. in a lot of ways. Okay, at the beginning of these books, when we first meet Travis, when Tim first introduces us to him, Manticore is this quiet little kingdom with, you know, dairy products and cheese. You know, there's no reason for anybody to come here, you know, and then all of a sudden somebody's trying to kill them all and they don't know why. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's like, 
if I had my choice, I would live in anybody's universe but one of mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, I, I, I mean the the individual novels work well together, but then the the overarching thing, which is a pretty big deal, in, in Manticore and uh, space and well in the universe in, in general is the wormhole mm-hmm. and the how that comes about the the story behind that and that building up like a a a bigger thing that connects all the rest of them uh, i thought that was a fantastic overarching point to include in the series and one i might not have thought of you know uh, at, at reading any other time like you, you know you, you think well they've had they've had the wormhole forever you know yep. and then you you don't even realize i didn't when i read the first book that the wormhole wasn't there and they didn't even well, they didn't talk about it it was there. They just well, you're right, right, right. No, you know, <laughs> yeah. But but well, it's kind of, it's kind of like these and the uh, the Star Kingdom novels, the YAs I do with Jane Linscope. Okay, they are both specifically in many ways to illuminate that part mm-hmm. of of Manticore in history, because Manticore becomes such a dominant player on the galactic stage for what is basically a single star system polity up until what 1921 22 when they uh add the uh the talbot cluster to it um i think the the flavor of the the andermani and how they've developed and whatnot uh is to me one of the more interesting uh aspects uh, of these books, and there's a lot of of Tim in the DNA of how the Andermani have developed and how they relate to Travis and how he relates to them. Um, I don't know how many people noticed, but um, uh, Avers Tar- Tarakoff's wife is directly descended from Travis and Chumps. And their family yacht is called the Kaiser's Gift. Interesting. Uh, just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> I, I, you know, I really like the Andermani, and I, I liked being in that area because it in the in the regular in the in the main universe, you get a little bit of the Andermani in in a couple of the books, but not really anything that it is in depth. And I, I liked seeing the inner workings there, and um, even the. Um, the uh the german ranks uh i I love those like i I have no idea what they mean but i love i mean i I get a little bit of it like as i'm reading i'm like okay okay i get it there but it it was a it's a really cool when you can incorporate that kind of thing and have it be um unforced and it you know it, it feels natural you know as you're as you're reading through those scenes um uh, so who who on the writing team kind of flushed out the Andermani? Was it was I, it was it Tim? I, I'd like to put in two points. First of all, the German ranks drove me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I have yeah. to copy paste out that list. They're all over the place. Uh, uh, I got through it, but those those were a a bear to work with. Secondly, uh, I have loved the Andermani ever since. I forget which book. When uh, honors brought aboard an Andermani ship, the cousin of the emperor, and explains to her, "We know what you're doing out here in Silesia. Yeah. We're not going to interfere. Uh, by the way, we're going to look the other way if you use your false flag codes." And the Andermani in the area have been instructed to assist you. Just yes. the very calm. We know everything. <laughs> <laughs> You have no secret. <laughs> yeah, that cemented the Andermani as uh, my top favorite honor. I'm sorry, but I like them better. Well, <laughs> well, I, have to, I have to say that one of the things that I've really liked about this series is because of the way the history broke down uh, in honors time. Okay. I wasn't able to bring. All right. For various reasons that I've discussed elsewhere, I had to drastically overhaul 
what was going to happen in the series um, from roughly a rising thunder on. And the problem was that elements had been pulled forward that weren't going to give me the time that I needed for my original concept, which was to kill Honor at the end of At All Costs. And then right. 20 years later, have her kids dealing with the Mason alignment and or 30 years later with the Mason alignment and the all the midshipmen that I introduced in Shadow of Saganami would have been the ship commanders and whatnot at the time. That was why that book was written initially. And then I realized that I couldn't do that. And one of the casualties of the need to overhaul was the Andermani involvement in the final conflict between the, the Grand Alliance and uh, the Solarian League. They're just, I could not fit them in the way that I'd wanted to fit them in. And this gave me an opportunity to do some of the development with them that they deserved. And if there are additional books after uh, To End in Fire and whatnot with the, you know, thing, events going on in Silesia and whatnot, when I go back to that, all of this will be in the bank for readers in terms of the back history that I wasn't able to develop in the war against the league. You see what yeah. I'm saying? So from my perspective, that's been a godsend, although it was not the reason that I originally was so enthusiastic about getting Tim involved to do these books in the first place. But it's been very advantageous in a lot of ways, both for me as the writer and I think for the reader who's read these books now, if they go back and they read some of the earlier books, like where where Honor is meeting von Rabenstang for the first time and whatnot, mm -hmm. uh, with this backstory in mind, what I saw going on in the background in those meetings will now be more accessible to the reader when those meetings occur. There's a history between them that has now been filled in a bit more. Yes. Yes. And this also gives us an opportunity to fill in some of the early history of Haven mm -hmm. and right. and Manticore back when they were friends. Okay. Well, and that's one of the things I really liked about uh, the second book and then kind of going forward is we've almost all the books so far, we've been blood enemies with Haven and now we're there. We're cool and we're doing things together. And, and uh, I thought that was really interesting. And, um, watching the how the relationship developed and knowing how it ends up mm -hmm. yeah yeah we're hitting the golden age of haven right now like they are the bright shining beacon it's the haven quadrant like it's like yeah. this is where you go it's you know haven's the place manticore is this little off you know this is in the corner this yeah. is this is the period in haven's history which led the mason alignment to decide that haven had to be destabilized Okay, mm. the entire People's Republic of Haven was the result of Mason involved. Well, okay, they got behind and pushed and drove wedges into the fissures. Obviously, they couldn't have created it out of whole cloth, but they right. helped to direct the fall of Athens, uh, you know, kind of thing. And in for unfortunately for them, inadvertently, while they were doing that, uh, they created uh, Manticore which was their, their ultimate stumbling block. One of the points that I've raised in a couple of books where people are thinking about assassinations is that, the, you know, there's always the law of unintended consequences. And it doesn't matter if you're a brilliant genetic Superman, okay? You know, you, you can't, you spend all your time running around riding herd on things that are trying to escape from the paddock, okay? And if you miss one, it can have really bad consequences down the road. I've had people who've talked about the Mason alignment and said, yeah, they never make mistakes, et cetera. I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> they never make mistakes. What do you think their whole problem is here right now? <laughs> well, it's interesting because you, I think one of the great things about this series is uh, the enemies are not only competent, but in some cases they're super competent and, uh, you have to step up what you're doing as the heroes in the in the the books to face off against that. And you know Jeremiah is uh, he's a great character. He's a great antagonist, and he's smart. And 
uh, he sees most of everything coming ahead of time, which I think is great. Um, but it's still like you, you're, you're right there with him. Is it going to work? Is it going to work? Is what's going to happen that is going to foul him up? Um, I think probably my solo character who's closest to, to him is probably Damien Harahop. But Damien has the advantage of wormholes and much faster communication than Jeremiah. <laughs> well, the, the, I like the, and in this book, the, the, the times, the travel times really kind of are, are, are point to what's, what's happening in, in the big picture. But then you have Chomps off on uh, his vacation, as it were, which um, I really enjoyed the setup for that uh, because it was really, um, really kind of a mistake on his part uh, and nothing that was his fault. Uh, and, you know, they ship him off to the boondocks. Um, and of course I won't spoil it, but, uh, that, the, the way that that unravels for him and the way that he, and that's what I meant at the beginning when I said that there was a great kind of dichotomy between every working man and all the political stuff is because you get these big, you get to meet the, uh, the Andermani emperor, you get to meet the, the queen, you get to see all these high level people. And you got chomps who's just kind of hanging out and doing <laughs> his own thing. But I love chomps. I loved reading his chapters. He was a lot of fun ever since he first started stealing cookies. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, he's, I, I, I really enjoyed that the the, the arc with him and, and Travis in the, uh, in the, the secret, uh, non O and I, uh, organization and, uh, um, the, the growth of chomps, I think as a character is really pushed in this book. And I liked that a lot. Well, let me, let me say one thing here. Um, when Tim created Travis, okay, I think he created one of the best viewpoint characters in the entire universe because Travis is such a dweeb in so many ways. <laughs> I mean, he is—he is—he's—he's—he's he's, he's a rules-following nerd okay uh -huh. he really desperately travesty desperately, yeah he desperately needs that structure and yet despite all of that he consistently thinks outside the box right okay um and the 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 juxtapositioning of those characteristics in a whole same more or less character <laughs> Okay, is extraordinarily difficult to accomplish, and I think yeah. that Tim did his proud uh, on that. Um, and 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 Travis has been allowed to grow as the books go on. You're talking about Chomps as a character, okay? Sure. In Chomps' case, what we did was we saw more of the character who was always there in this mm. book okay in travis's case what we've been able to see is the character himself growing and changing significantly um and i'm just i told you i love tim as a writer okay and and this is one of the reasons why i do um i just it's like to me you know, people talk about Honor Harrington as the focal character of the universe. The books are all about her, et cetera. But I'll tell you the honest truth. The character in Honor's time who has accomplished the most, done the most with the least beginning is Tom Feisman, who is one of my favorite characters in the entire yeah. series. Um, and Travis is in Feisman territory for me. I do like the um, the... I really enjoy the pace in which he is progressing and growing as a, not only just in the Navy, but as a, as a character, as a person, like following him along. Like uh, I think sometimes, I, you know, you read stories where a lot of that is rushed and, you know, I, I think that the pacing here where he's developing his relationship with Lisa and, and he's, he's growing as, as a person, but then he has, I mentioned it, you know, a little bit before, but he has a kind of uh a moment where he's 
kind of caught between a really real rock and a hard place, making a really tough decision on do I do what I, I want to do or do I do what I need to do? And he makes the right decision. And I did not, I, in my head, I was reading that chapter going, he's going to make the wrong decision. This is the first time <laughs> that he's going to make the wrong decision. And he didn't. And that surprised me. Well, I mean, it doesn't because it's, it's Travis, but I, I really liked seeing that. Right. Yeah. That is one of my favorite scenes in the book. You can say so too. too. Yeah. I, I, I liked <laughs> doing that when David had set up what the decision was but I got to actually write it and beat him into um, into all of that. I, did you write that one and I rewrite it, or did you? We because you both, touched, you both touched that scene a whole bunch of times. <laughs> I, I even poked into that one a few times. So yeah, <laughs> I forget who wrote what a lot of times. Well, I mean, it does all the battle scenes in space, but the other stuff gets melded back and forth. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and. I think that's one of the reasons that the books work uh, as as well as they do, because all the people involved in in writing them are hands on. Okay, and there's there's input. I mean, one of the problems that you have doing a solo work, and it's one reason people use beta readers and whatnot, which I never have, is that. It is very, very clear to you what is happening in a given scene and why. And it may not be equally clear to your readers. They may get something totally different out of it. And if you have two other guys who you trust reading the book and saying, wait, we have a problem here because, okay, that helps a lot. And it also, I think, helps to keep the entire work focused. Mm. Um, it can also, I know Tom and I drive Tim to absolute frothing madness, uh, working, working on this Unfortunately, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> no comments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel bad because it's like, I know that it's, it would be way easier in a lot of cases to just sort of run weapons free and like hot go, you know, right. And, and. You know, and, and part of my job is, is to, to stop that and part of, you know, and, and hopefully when I do my job right, I at least can, you know, can can help, um, can help and like find alternatives. But I have a lot of places where it's like, I can't, we can't do that. Like here's, you know, there's reasons for reasons, whatever the reasons are. Usually there's like 300 pages of like, you know, here's here's crash statistics on air car crashes. That was a long, painful conversation, sorry. Um, but it, it's, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm adding value when I do that, but I also hate doing it because I know that it's like, here's this beautiful written scene and, and you know, and it's sort of breaking it and, and having to, to crack it in pieces and then put the pieces back together. Why do you worry more about Tim when you do that than you do about me? <laughs> I'm just curious here. <laughs> so much nicer than you, David. You just bowl right over. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing I always have to remember is whenever I've cut and pasted one of these Frankenstein, Frankenstein things together, the reader never sees that. Mm. That helps a lot. I, I can see all of the scars, all of the bruises yeah. and everything, but the, the reader won't. All the yeah. stitches. Yeah, but the reader won't. Yeah. Yeah. That was Josh Hayes talking to David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope. And now another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Eleven. Faster, Tyler muttered. Sir? Byron asked, considering the progress of the mine with satisfaction. Both washers were in place, the lower held up by what, from the distance the starfire maintained, seemed the thinnest of strands. Single-strand carbon nanotube was incredibly strong stuff, but the strands weren't nearly as thin as they looked. Each was nearly a foot across, woven and rewoven about from individual strands thinner than a bacterium. 
humans had finally cracked extruding continuous strands of carbon monomolecules. What defeated them so far was doing it as simply as the glatun spinners, which moved at a rate of nearly 40 feet per minute. I was just thinking, Tyler said. This is going very well, Byron. How soon can we start installation of the separation equipment? We're not even ready to start weaving the pipe, sir, Byron said. The lines can only hold so much weight at this point. We'll need to spin more lines before we can start doing the actual mine portion. Think about ways to get around that, Tyler said. We're running out of time. Sir, Audler said, frowning and taking his pipe out. We're well ahead of schedule. Byron, Tyler said quietly. And no more than two years, maybe less. The Rangora and Glatun are going to get into a war that will dwarf anything that this region has seen in a thousand years. How that war is going to go is a big question. But one thing that's certain is that the Horvath are going to take the opportunity to cut Earth off from Glatun's support. We've got the construction help we needed. We can build ships on our own. We can mine asteroids. We can build some pretty fair lasers and we have the sapple. We can build anything we need and we can defend the soul system pretty well and keep the enemy out of wolf. If we have fuel. Oh, Byron said, putting his pipe back in and chewing on it. Tyler wasn't sure if he ever actually smoked it. Get your team together and brainstorm, Tyler said. We've got permission to make as many spinners as we want. We can make anything that Gorku has on its database. Get with Granatica and see about priorities because it's about to get really busy. Steren's not exactly happy being in the wolf system, Tom Schneider said, looking out the crystal wall of the Starfire. There's not much to do, and the medical facilities are... State-of-the-art, but rough and ready, Tyler said. I was about to say, not designed around the pregnant daughter of the system owner screaming at the doctors, but I'm far too polite. Tom was not the head of Apollo Mining in the Wolf System. His title was Special Project Manager, Wolf 359 Division. The fact that he was the son-in-law of the boss had nothing to do with the fact that when he asked for anything, he got it but there was a reason that Tyler had put him in the position. She and you are safer in Wolf than in the soul system, Tyler said. And there's going to be more room to move around once some more habitats get made. The mine's going to have plenty of room to move around. I'll get you guys a little bungalow in the clouds. It will be pretty, Tom said. But what's the point of us looking at this asteroid. It's about the right size, Tyler said, and the right composition. I want you to spin process it and get it down to iron and a bit of nickel. Then do a seal wrap like the washers. When you got steel, make a shell about the size of Granatica. Which will be for, Tom said. That is the next conversation, Tyler said. Granatica? Tyler said. You cold? The AI said, forming a hologram of a glatun head in the starfire. How are the repairs going? Tyler asked. Just about done, Granatica said happily. I don't exactly feel young, but I feel younger than I've felt in a while. I even got the rust smell out of the air processors. That took some time to run down. Tyler was pretty sure it was just there to remind the users that the faber was old. If it had really gotten the taste out of the air, it was feeling young, which might be good and might be bad. You got the updates from Gorku? Tyler asked. Are they really the releases we need? They got the whole packet, Granatica said. Terra, or rather the LFD Corporation, is now authorized to produce anything that Gorku had in its designs and patents database. 
including military-grade drives, weapons, and inertics. Which is great, Tyler said. Except we don't have the production capacity to use the data. Which brings me to my next question. You were using 30% of your capacity to do repairs. How much capacity would it take you to produce another ship faber in, oh, about a year? You want me to twin? Granatica said dubiously. Some of it I can't make, the shell especially. Pretty much everything else I can make in a year or so, using, oh, twenty percent of my capacity, if I have the materials. You need another faber? Troy does, Tyler said. Yes. It needs a faber to produce grav plates and drives, power plants, ships, and especially missiles. The last one is the easiest, Granatica said. There's a glatun design of medium missile that fits pretty close to the Boeing Majolner specs. I can pump out a faber that will be able to make missiles from raw materials in about a month. The output will be about five missiles per hour. That works, Tyler said. Can they fly themselves to the bays? Oh, yeah, Granatica said. Easy. I still think Troy needs a faber. Tyler said. Does it bother you making a twin? I'd think of it more as a child. You're human, Granatica said. No, it doesn't bother me that you want another faber. I'm an AI. We don't have feelings. Granatica, Tyler said, nearly using the nickname that hovered in the back of his mind every time he talked to the AI. Things are about to get very bad. I know you've been looking at the strategic situation. I'll admit that things don't look good, no, the AI said. Churchill, who was one of our great war leaders, once said that the first year of a war you have nothing that you need, the second year you have half of what you need, and the third year you have all that you need, you just can't use it. In some cases, it's too late to use it. I don't want another faber. Soul needs another faber. And when that one is done, we're going to need a third, and a fourth, and a fifth. So, you want me to churn out fabers, Granatica said. Just sit here in the system and churn out newer competing fabers with all the latest gimmicks. Tyler sat and thought about it for a moment. Granatica, I know AIs don't have feelings, he said. But if you did, would you like humans? Most of them, Granatica said. Some of them are idiots. Agreed, Tyler said, grinning suddenly. But in general, would you say that you'd prefer that we not be wiped out of existence? Or, to put it another way, are you looking forward to a wipe-to-basic personality and then working for the Horvath? I'll get to work on that faber, Granatica said. It was all about levers. Tyler checked the telltales on the airlock, then opened the door. One exposure to vacuum was all he ever wanted to experience. And while getting out in Granatica or the monkey business was one thing, Shuttle Bay 1 of the Troy had been built by the lowest bidder. Mr. Vernon, welcome to the Troy, Admiral Jack Kenyon said. The two-star commander of the Troy was of a size for it, standing nearly seven feet tall and probably pushing weight limit. He carried it well. Been around it a good bit, Tyler said, sniffing the air, then shaking the Admiral's hand. Sort of been hoboing in your bay, to tell you the truth. This is just the first time I've gotten out of a shuttle or ship. I had heard we had some homeless people hanging around, the admiral said, grinning. But I understand there's a nice little compartment that somehow got slipped into the plans on the civilian side. Something about a 3,000-square-foot apartment with a view of the bay. Hey, I built the damn thing, Tyler said. I figured I deserved a vacation getaway. The commander of the monkey business has also been making noises about how much room I'm taking up. I figured you've got the room. 
I suppose there's that, the Admiral said. And if I may introduce my senior officers. Please, Tyler said, nodding to the group. Commodore Kurt Pounders, Kenyon said, trooping the line. Chief of Staff. Sir, the Commodore said. He was nearly as tall as his boss, but rail thin with a shock of black hair cut fairly long for the military. Commodore, Tyler said, shaking his hand. I hope you have a good support team. Operations on this thing are going to be interesting. Which brings us to Colonel Raymond Helberg, Admiral Kenyon said. Chief of Operations. Sir, the colonel said. He had a faint English accent. Tyler had heard that some of the crew and officers were from NATO units. Definitely got your work cut out for you, Tyler said, shaking his hand. We endeavor to provide, sir, the colonel said. Commodore Russell Marchant, the admiral continued, commander of Task Force One. Commodore, Tyler said, shaking his hand. Sir, the true Navy commander in charge of the Constitution cruisers and Independence frigates was medium height, with pale blonde hair and just as pale blue eyes. This is one heck of a big platform. I'm not even sure what my group is going to do. Anything that requires moving, Commodore, Tyler said, chuckling. The Troy isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Captain James Sharp, the Admiral continued. Chief Tactical Officer. We throw rocks. The captain was black as an ace of spades and tall enough to have played college basketball. And poke people with flashlights. I'll tell my people not to charge you for practice time with the sapple, Tyler said, grinning. You're going to have to pay for the missiles. I understand we're getting a missile faber, the tactical officer said. In about a month, Tyler said. There may be more. It's the usual problem of balancing infrastructure and actual equipment. For that matter, it will be a general faber, so your bosses will have to decide how much of it goes to infrastructure versus weapons. We could use more missiles, Admiral Kenyon said. That's for sure. Captain Chris Denote, commander of the assault boat wing. We deliver the mail, sir, the captain said, shaking Tyler's hand when we have shuttles. They're on their way, Tyler said. Until recently, we were calling them emergency rescue shuttles because marine landing craft would have twigged the anti-military design functions of Granatica. They're being redesignated as Myrmidons. Still, the same capabilities for the time being. But we'll have about one a day coming in any time now. Looking forward to it, the captain said. There's a training group down at Great Lakes doing workups. It's going to be interesting. I heard the Navy was insisting on enlisted personnel as pilots, Tyler said. They're boats, the Admiral said, shrugging. Boats aren't run by officers, so, yes, the majority of the drivers will be coxswains. That will be interesting, Tyler said, raising an eyebrow. And the customer for Captain Denote's boats the admiral finished. Colonel Daniel Bolger, USMC. Sir? The colonel said, nodding sharply. Have you tried out the micrograv ball court, colonel? Tyler asked. Yes, sir, the colonel replied gruffly. It was a very interesting experience. I figured that if your personnel are going to be working in microgravity, it helped to have a place to get in practice that wasn't practice, if you know what I mean. Training doesn't always have to be serious. The more time they spend in microgravity... Tyler trailed off since the colonel seemed to be suffusing a bit. He wasn't sure what he'd said. The colonel may be less than enthusiastic because the first platoon that tried it ended up with half a dozen serious injuries, the admiral said dryly. Oh, Tyler said. Sorry. We're installing more padding, sir, the colonel said, his jaw working. That's been a pretty interesting evolution as well. Superglue doesn't work the same way in microgravity as it does in gravity. Tyler tried not to wince. 
Nothing liquid or semi-liquid worked the same in microgravity as it did on Earth. Everything about Troy has been a learning experience, Colonel, Tyler said. Second platoon learned pretty quick that weight isn't the same as mass, the colonel said. No pain, no gain, sir. And arguably, the most important part of my command staff is still unable to be visually present in this bay, the admiral said, raising his voice. Paris? Here, sir, the AI replied from a PA box. Welcome to Troy, Mr. Vernon. I will endeavor to do a better job than my predecessor. The big mistake of the Trojans was meeting the Achaeans outside the walls, Tyler said. Let's not make the same mistake. Not a chance, Admiral Kenyon said, grinning. I don't plan to fight fair. With your permission, sir, I've arranged for a dining out later. Yourself, the officers of the Troy, and some of the senior civilian contractors. Sounds good, Tyler said, blinking. I'm free this evening. In the meantime, the Admiral said, I'd like to get these gentlemen back to their duties, and I thought we could go inspect some of the more interesting aspects of the design. Okay, Tyler said, trying not to gulp. Gentlemen, the Admiral said, nodding at the group. Until later. That was another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thank you to Josh Hayes and praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope for talking with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>